Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Steve. I am alcoholic. And I'm grateful to God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for one more day of sobriety. I'd like to uh, welcome all the new people to Alcoholics Anonymous, those that raised their hands and those that didn't. And if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous or you've been around a while and you're looking for the secret, like I looked for the secret when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to save you the trouble. It took me quite a while. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't come here to get sober. I came here because I had no other choice. I came here because my life wasn't working. I came here because I was absolutely terrified of the, the experience that I was going to have to live with me for the rest of my life. And it was the one thing I tried to avoid. I came to your Alcoholics Anonymous and I saw people and <clears throat> they had something I wanted. They had that look inside them that said the war is over. And my sponsor told me, he said, Steve, if you've got a war going on inside you, it doesn't make any difference who wins, you lose. And I understood that. And he said, the only way to win that war is surrender. Give it up. And I didn't understand that until it was beaten up. I gave alcohol everything I, I could, and it beat the, be, <clears throat> beat the bejesus out of me. <clears throat> I came to Alcoholics Anonymous just so I'd be all right. That's all I ever wanted was just to be all right. And I came here, and I looked around, and I wanted to find out what the secret was. And I stuck around. It took me about, oh, I guess 60 or 90 days before I found the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked hard. And so if you're looking tonight, and like I say, if you're new or you're nearly new or you've been around six months and you're still looking for the secret and you're wondering if we have one, we do. And I'm going to share it with you right now so you can stop looking for it. The secret to Alcoholics Anonymous is that we don't drink. See, we don't smoke it, shoot it, snort it, or drop it. (laughs) The reason I like to share that is because I almost missed it. (laughs) I mean, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to tell you, life was absolutely fantastic. Life was great. See, for the first 10 days, and then I quit smoking pot. (laughs) Reality set in. It's absolutely fantastic. I don't know, uh, I don't know why you're here tonight, but, uh, I do know why I'm here, and that is, life, life become, became unbearable. The only, the only program that I had for living quit working for me. Things were, had been a lot worse in my life than they were when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I just, uh, the magic quit working, you see. <clears throat> the day came that I took the drink and the drink got me drunk, but it didn't turn my head off. The day came that I took the drink and I looked myself in the mirror and it didn't like me. I took another drink and it still didn't like me. No matter how many drinks I took, it didn't like me. You see, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there was nothing you could say to me to make me feel worse about me than I already did. Nothing you could say to make me hate me more than I already did. You know, I uh, I try to stay as active as I can in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, every Wednesday morning I go down to uh, go down to the courthouse and uh, sit there in case there's any uh, people that have been arrested with uh, drunk driving charges and things of that nature that'd like to talk to somebody from the program. I try to to be an example that the program really does work. And I don't know about anybody else, and I don't know what got you here. I went to jail a lot. Uh, it never got me to Alcoholics Anonymous. It never convinced me that uh, that I should stop drinking. I got married a lot. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was like in the instant cures, you know. I wanted, I'd do anything if I thought it'd make me better. And if it didn't, I didn't want any part of it. I, I was telling Bob today, I said, you know, I always wanted to get married. I just never wanted to be married, you know. <laughs> when I said I do, if it didn't fix me, I didn't want any part of it, and I didn't want to put any energy into it. I mean, I wasn't one of those drinkers that, you know, would sit there and sip it, man. I wanted to get downtown right now. Man, I wanted to be fixed right away. I wasn't interested in drinking for a long time and kind of mellowing out. I was absolutely terrified of living without booze. Um, but I go down to the court, and every time I went went to, to court when I was out there drinking, the judge would just shake his head at me. He never told me anything about being an alcoholic. He, he just said, you know, that I was crazy, and I related to that. I knew he was right. And he said I was a menace to society, and I knew that. I was a menace to myself. But uh, I never had a judge say what this judge said to these guys. I was sitting in there and being uh, trying to look good, as I always do, 
And uh, <laughs> this judge says, uh, he goes through the half the docket and then gets to the drunk drivers and all those cute people. And he says, uh, now we're going to get to the cases that support the judicial system for the, uh, for the state of California. <laughs> he says, it's all you drunks. And I'm sitting there and I said, what's he talking about? He says, it's all you alcoholics, all you hopeless, helpless drunks that are going to die in downtown Santa Ana at the bus station. I'm absolutely floored. I never heard a judge talk like this in my life. I can't believe it. He said, there's absolutely no cure for you. He said, you're going to drink yourself to death. You're a menace to society. I'm thinking, I can't believe this guy's talking this way. All of a sudden, he says, <clears throat> he goes through this whole spew, and he says, and I'm going to do everything I can to get you off the streets. So he calls his first case up. And uh, <laughs> this guy, I guess, was about 40 years old, and... Uh, he looked like I used to feel. I mean, just worn out. <laughs> this guy was just beat up, I'll tell you. And uh, the judge got him up there and read his name, and he said, uh, you know something, this is your third drunk driving. Your third. You're a hopeless, helpless drunk. Do you know that? He said, yes, sir. He said, you're going to die in downtown Santa Ana at the bus station. Do you know that? He said, yes, sir. He said, you're a hazard to society. You're going to get in, the, you're going to get out there on the freeway in your car drunk and you're going to kill somebody. Now I want to know what you're going to do about it. He said, next time I'm going to take a taxi cab. <laughs> I, I loved him right away because I understood that. I thought, that was great. <laughs> That's the solution. Yeah. Until you had those drinks. And then when you have those drinks, there ain't nobody going to drive me anywhere. You know? <laughs> I'll take my car. Thank you. I got to be in control of the situation. And he had this other guy. <laughs> he had this other guy out there, just exactly the opposite. Now this guy was 19 years old. He was 19 years old, and uh, the judge went through the same spew, telling me he's a hopeless, helpless drunk, gonna die in his own puke. And this guy's shaking his head. No, sir. No, sir. I, no, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. That guy said, judge said, did you hear what I said? He said, Your Honor, I'm not alcoholic. He said, Well, how do you know you're not alcoholic? He said, I've been psychoanalyzed. <laughs> they told me I was an alcoholic. And he said, well, I'd like to talk to your psychologist because you're alcoholic. He said, no, sir, I'm not. He said, how do you know you're not? He said, because I'm a junior at Brigham Young University. And I understood that. There's no way you can be an alcoholic and be a junior at Brigham Young University. you got to be one or the other. <laughs> oh, God. And we just go through that and just the entire opposite of the spectrum. And the point there is that neither person was ready to quit drinking. You know, we we go to those depths, and people that aren't alcoholic don't understand that. You know, I know that uh, I was born in I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and I was raised in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, I took my first drink when I was about 14 or 15 years old. I don't know the ex the exact age because I didn't know I was going to have to report for it later. <laughs> but <laughs> but. Uh, but what I do know is I know what I drank. I drank black and white scotch whiskey and Colt 45 malt liquor together. And uh, and I want to tell you something. It did something for me that not, never had happened before. What it did for me was it gave me the ability to walk that walk, gave me the ability to talk that talk. You know, it made me all right. Life was good. You know, <clears throat> I wasn't shy anymore. I got muscles, you know, where I didn't even have places before. It was incredible. <laughs> I, well, I didn't, I didn't care what you thought about what I said, and I mean, I could rattle on, and it was absolutely incredible, and I absolutely loved it. And it lasted for about three or four hours, and then I was just laying out there, puking my guts out. <laughs> but the great thing about it was, when I, I never forget, when I was laying out there on that boat, puking my guts out, the only thing I could think about was, I found the answer. <laughs> life is going to be all right. You know, life is going to be good. But I can't tell anybody that this is the answer. And I used to have fantasies that uh, if I, I didn't particularly get into the glamour of, you know, drinking. I wanted to be quick. And so I had this fantasy that I could just invent a little pill and take it. And it would do the same thing for me that alcohol did. Now, I understand uh, they did invent one, and I kind of missed it, it was Valium. And I just blew right by that. I never got into it. Uh, although I did, I was, uh, I was what you'd term a human garbage can. I would do anything if it would change where I was at. You see, I wasn't really into, uh, asking you what it would do. I just asked you if it would change it. If it would change it, I wanted it. And that's, that's the way my life was. Uh, 
at the age of 17, I got uh, the opportunity to make the first major decision in my life, and that was I got a choice. I could either go to prison or I could join the United States Marine Corps. <laughs> and so I decided to join the Marine Corps. My attitude was I was sick and tired of people telling me what to do. <laughs> uh, absolutely incredible experience. I joined the, joined the Marine Corps, you know, was all volunteer, and uh, <laughs> and I I think it's important to tell you. It's I mean I won't go into my through my illustrious Marine Corps career. I'll just tell you. I went in E1, and I got out three and a half years later in E1. <laughs> I mean, I was great for like 90 yards, but, you know, if I had to do 100 yards, I just couldn't make it. Never could. You know, <clears throat> just never could. It, that's the way it worked when I, I, I was going to get married. I had this, this quota for getting married. Now, I don't know if anybody else had this. I didn't know until after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that the sequence usually works something like this, that you meet somebody... And then maybe you like them a little bit, and you might talk to them some sometime, and and then you might think about uh, going out with them and dating them a little while, and and through that process, you know, as you get to know them, that you fall in love with them, and uh, and then if you seem to be compatible, uh, uh, you get married. Now that's the way I, I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I got here, I just wake up one morning and decide I was going to get married. Now I didn't have anybody in mind. <laughs> Which goes to show you that it doesn't take a lot of talent. <laughs> but, I, but I did have the criteria. And the criteria was that uh, she had to be gainfully employed, number one. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and she had to have good credit. Uh, <laughs> and she had to have an automobile. The reason she had to have an automobile was because... Uh, by the time I was getting married, my license had been permanently revoked <laughs> for driving while under the influence of alcohol. And uh, the problem is when you meet somebody that has all that criteria, they're generally very non-understanding people. You know, they don't really they don't really know what we have to do out there in that jungle. You know, <laughs> I mean, they don't really appreciate. The struggle that we're going through every day, and most of it's for them. <laughs> I always came home, you know, two or three days late or something, but I was out there in those jungles trying to put those big deals together that never came together. But I was still trying all the time. And they just don't understand that, and they persecute, persecute you, and they divorce you, and it's a rough deal, I'll tell you. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, I, And I got married the first time when I was in the Marine Corps, and part of the reason for that was if you get married, they'll give you more money. And, <laughs> and that seemed to be the best way to, to get more money to drink with rather than go to work. <laughs> I wasn't into a lot of work. Uh, I worked at drinking, and if I should happen to have enough time to do a job after that, I did, but usually I didn't. Um, I got out of the Marine Corps in 1971. I went back to Jacksonville, Florida. I got divorced right away because now I'm back home and I don't need to be married. The Marine Corps, the Marine Corps had fixed me. I think you ought to know that uh, because when I put that uniform on and I could go home, you see, I no longer had to be me. I could be that Marine. I could be that thing, but I could wear that as a disguise. I could travel incognito. You know, because all my life I was in the business of looking good on the outside while I was dying on the inside. You know, but don't let them know. Don't let them know. And you see, if you you got that uniform on, you can go there and you can tell them those stories that aren't true, but they don't know. And you can be those things <clears throat> that they don't know anything about, and you can be anything but you. And that's all I ever wanted to do. The problem was that when you're in the Marine Corps, occasionally they like you to come back. You see? <laughs> And uh, I had a problem with that. I, I don't deny it. <laughs> the reason I had a problem, though, was a logical reason, was because if I went back there, I was just like them. <laughs> and if I was just like them, I was less than. I was inadequate. I didn't fit in, and I had to drink. You know, I'll never forget the first time that uh, somebody offered me some of that non-habit-forming marijuana. Uh, what I said to him was, no, thank you. I drink is what I do. And unfortunately, the person that uh, offered it to me was my second biggest problem, and that was a woman. <laughs> she asked me twice, and that was enough. <laughs>
<laughs> said, if you insist, all right. <laughs> and uh, I want to tell you something. I smoked that marijuana and life was good. Life was good. I mean, I'll tell you what. I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. You know, and that was the beginning of the combinations. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 25 years old this last time. And I was beat up. I was absolutely beat up. I couldn't take any more. I didn't come here because <clears throat> I thought it was a good idea. I came here because there was no other place to go. I was absolutely worn out. I mean, my mind worked like this. I can, I'd get up in the morning and I'd take two of those little black pills that make you grind your teeth and talk a lot about things you don't know anything about. <laughs> and then I'd go to work. And then I'd take off and work around 9.30 and I'd go smoke some of those cigarettes. And then I'd go back to work, and I'd say it worked about 10.30, and then I'd go to lunch, and then I'd drink. And that's the way my life went, you know, just an endless cycle. I drank every day. Every day I drank, because that's the only way I knew how to live. Absolutely the only way I knew how to live. Say I went back to Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, I, got a, I got a job in the insurance business. Now, the reason I got a job in the insurance business was because I knew a guy that was in the insurance business, and he always had a lot of money on, and he had a lot of free time. And so I thought that was a good idea, that I'd do that. Now, I'll just tell you this. I, they require that you take an exam to sell insurance in the state of Florida. I don't know if they do that here, but I took the exam, and I know less about insurance today than I knew then, and I didn't know anything then. Somehow or another, I passed the exam. Now, I went out and I sold a lot of insurance to people that didn't need it. <laughs> what I needed was I needed a drink, and I needed the money that it, you know that uh, they paid me to get the drink. And the thing I liked most about that insurance business was it gave me a lot of free time. So when I had that free time, I decided to, to get into another business, and the other business I decided to get into, <clears throat> well, what I'd like to call it was pharmaceuticals. What they called it was drug trafficking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I can't believe it. Um, mm. Yeah, they, I uh, we we started selling marijuana that we were getting uh, shipped out from California, about 500 pounds a week, and uh, <laughs> I had a partner, and he got arrested. Funny thing about that. Now I'll tell you something. I always thought all these people got arrested because they were chumps, and I was smarter than they were. You know, they're as smart as I was. They wouldn't get arrested. Now, I want to tell you, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 25. I'd been in and out of jail over 27 times. So, uh, you know, my record wasn't that good. But, <laughs> but he went to jail, and I just thought, you know, what a chump. You know, you know, he just doesn't have it together. I never realized until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that God looks out after fools and drunks, and I was covered on both counts. <laughs> you know, God looked out after me when I wasn't capable of looking out after myself. God looked out after me when I wasn't even asking him to. I don't know why, and I don't need to know why, but I accept it today. You know, I just accept that. My life wasn't going too good, so I decided to get married again. And I told you what the criteria was. I threw my hook out there. I caught somebody. I had to marry him. After I, after I caught him, I had to marry him within 90 days. That was the deal. If, they, if, I, try, if I tried to... Make it last longer than 90 days. They found out what I was really like, and they didn't want nothing to do with me. <laughs> so, I mean, that's one of those things when, you know, when you see them across the bar, and you say, I love you. <laughs> Made sense then, I'll tell you. <laughs> I mean, this is forever. <laughs> or until tomorrow morning, whichever comes first, right? <laughs> oh my God! You know, and then you know, I, I, you know, I qualified them. If they qualified, I married them. Quit, because I didn't see a reason waiting, and uh, and I usually didn't last too long. I, I, I was 23 years old, and I'd been married and divorced three times, and uh, I was into instant cures. I wanted to be fixed. I just wanted to be fixed, you know. I just, uh, I think about it today and, you know, all my life, <clears throat> I absolutely destroyed the lives of people around me and never wanted to. Never wanted to. Never wanted to hurt a soul. 
Never wanted to, and they never understood that, you know. What I would do, and the way my mode of operation would go, is if you don't love me, I will do anything until you love me. You see, I will do anything to make you love me until you love me. What happens then is, if you love me, I hate me. You see? And if that's true, my head says, if she loves me, she can't have much going for her. <laughs> so I've got to go get somebody else that doesn't love me and make them love me. Always trying to get that answer out there to make me better. And I never wanted to hurt a soul, and I always did. And, I, and try to explain that to somebody. When they're looking and say, why me? Why did you have to do this to me? Why did you have to come in my life? I say, I don't know. Don't you care about me? And I'd say, yes, I do. And I really felt like I did. And I wanted to be a good husband. And I wanted to be a good father. And I wanted to be a good employee. And I wanted to be all those things. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know, I always thought. I said, God made good people and God made bad people. And he made me a bad person. And I don't want to be. I don't want to be, but I am. You know, I used to say, but I'm not that way. Don't you understand? I'm not that way every time they arrest me. I said, you know what you did? I said, but I'm not that way. I'm not that way. But pretty soon I, I just gave that up. And I said, you know, why me? Why am I this way? And I don't want to be. You know, why do I do these things to people I don't want to be? Didn't know until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. There was no way I could love you when I hated me so much. No way. And it's actually destroyed the people in my life. Never wanted to. Never wanted to. Got married and uh, got out of the insurance business because I decided to get into an honest profession. And uh, so I got and I started selling used cars. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, that's enough reason to leave Jacksonville, Florida right there. No. <laughs> I sold cars to people that didn't want cars. Not because I was such a good salesman, but because I needed the money to drink. And I knew a lot about lying, stealing, and cheating. Now, I'd like to tell you, that I used to drink, and after I'd get drunk, I'd lie and steal and cheat. That's what I'd like to tell you. Unfortunately, I know there's some people around here that have been sober for a while, <laughs> and they won't buy that. What happened was I lied, and I would lie, steal, and cheat, and drinking would make it all right. You see? Drinking would make it all right. You know, and that was the whole deal. I, I, uh... I got in that car business, and I was, uh, first month I was in the business, I was the number one salesman with that agency. And my boss came up to me, and he said something strange. What he said was, he said, Steve, I, I'd like to uh, buy you a drink tonight. Now, that scares me right away when somebody says they want to buy me a drink, because I'm wondering if they're serious about it or if it's just, you know, just a, a <laughs> statement, a drink, because I'm not really interested in a drink, you know. And so I said, well, okay, you're the boss. If that's what you want to do, we'll do that. And so we went down, and we had a drink, and I had another drink. And at this time, I was into combinations. And that, when you're into combinations, that's, you know, smoking the pot, drinking the booze, and taking the pills, and trying to get the combination right, just so everything will be all right. I mean, I would lay out my car with both doors open, puking my guts out, thinking, next time I'll smoke the pot first, you know? <laughs> I just want to get the combination down and make sure it's right. Oh, what a deal. Um... But my, uh, so my boss, uh, we sat there and drink, and in between drinks, I'd go out to the car and smoke some of this stuff, just trying to get right. I got right that night. Now, <laughs> he left, he left that bar around 11.30 or 12, which I always thought was strange, because they didn't close till 2. You know? <laughs> and I never left before they closed, ever. And so I stayed till 2. And because I was a salesman of the month and all this, they had given me the most expensive demonstrator car they had. It was absolutely beautiful. And I had backed it into a parking space. And uh, I, the thing that's really amazing about that was they gave me this car, and my license had been revoked years ago. You know, they didn't know that. I mean, I'll tell you how good I was. In Florida, they issue your license. They issue a temporary. It's a piece of paper and all that. And they mail you your, your uh, standard license from Tallahassee. I never got mine from Tallahassee. I had this crumpled piece of paper I carried around for years. Because my license got revoked before they could get it mailed to me from Tallahassee. It's incredible. So I used to tell them, uh, when I went to these jobs, I'd tell them this old crumpled thing. I'd say, I'm still waiting for it to come out of Tallahassee. This is three years later. <laughs> and so uh, so I'm sitting there, and I drink until 2 o'clock, and I go get in this car, and I'm starting to leave. 
And I put it in drive, and I jump the curb, and I run head on into a palm tree. Now, I don't know too many people that have totaled out cars in a parking lot, but I did. <laughs> and uh, I, backed off that, I backed off that palm tree, and the frame was bent, and the engine was smoking, and so I did the only thing I knew how. I drove the car home with no headlights, you know. And I was never grateful for that opportunity until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I realized that behind that palm tree was a swimming pool. You see, and God put that palm tree there for me. <laughs> and I'm grateful for that today. You see, because God looks out after fools and drunks, and I was covered that night. They had the audacity to fire me from that job. I couldn't believe it. I told them, I told them who I was, and they told me who they were, and uh, they fired me. And my life went on and on and on like that. And, and uh, pretty soon the 502s kept coming and coming and coming and coming. And by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had 13 502s. It's hard to do that. You've got to work a lot to do that. But I got last two back-to-back, and I did, I, I did the only thing I knew how to do that, that morning when I got out of jail. I went to my office. I closed the door. I started to cry, and I called my mother. And I said to her, I said, Mom, I'm going to jail. And she said, what's new? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, you don't understand. I've called my attorney, and he says I'm going up for five years. And I'm not that way. You know, I just can't do that. You know, I don't know what to do. And she said something to me that nobody else had ever said to me before. She said, Steve, I think you're alcoholic. Now, I know I'm not alcoholic. I know what an alcoholic is. I'm standing in my office. I'm dressed in my clothes, which was a rarity. And, uh, and, and, uh, I'm, you know, and I've got a wife and a son. Now, how can I be alcoholic? I know what an alcoholic is, and I can't be one, but I am so damn smart. I'm going to work it out. That attorney may not be able to work it out, but I'll work it out, you see. Because now that she says I'm an alcoholic, i got an idea. The idea is I'm going to convince that judge I'm an alcoholic. Now, if I can convince him I'm an alcoholic, I'll tell him now that I understand that I'll never drink anymore and everything's going to be all right. That's the reason I did all those things. I'm an alcoholic. That's the reason I did them. She said something to me. She said, do you mind if I call somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, no, I wish you would. And so she said, okay. She hung up and about... Ten minutes later, this guy called me, and he said, My name's Marty, and I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to talk to you. And I said, Just a minute. I got up and closed my office door. I don't want anybody to hear this conversation. And he said, <clears throat> He talked to me for a few minutes. He said, I'd like to come out and talk to you. I said, Okay, I think that'd be a good idea. Because my head said, This guy just told me he's an alcoholic. He's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So obviously, if I can convince this guy I'm an alcoholic, he said he was one. He'll know. Then I'll be able to get him to go to court and tell the judge my problem. Everything's going to be all right. <laughs> now, immediately after I hang up, immediately after I hung up the phone, I had this vision that, that absolutely just frightened the hell out of me. I just had this vision of this guy pulling up in front of my business and a 1963 Falcon that said Alcoholics Anonymous on the door. <laughs> Oh, my God, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I was absolutely terrified. I, uh, incredible. What happened was this guy pulled up in a brand-new Porsche, and I'll tell you something, it was a program of attraction. <laughs> I wanted what he had, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, my God. He, uh, he came in, and I told him a story similar to what I just, just told you this evening. And I asked him that question. I said, Marty, do you think I'm alcoholic? He said, Steve, normally we allow you to make that decision. <laughs> I'll make the decision. <laughs> he said, you're definitely alcoholic. And I want to tell you something. The relief just crept all over me. I said, I, I've done it. I put this guy together. He thinks I'm alcoholic. <laughs> It wasn't until I was sober, I'm sure, over a year or something, that I realized that I told him the truth, or as best as I probably could. And he, he said I should go to a meeting, and I said I would. Now, what's important about this time is that I was going to court, and I asked him. I got my first resentment against Alcoholics Anonymous, by the way, because I asked Marty. I said, would you go to court with me? He said that he would. He said he would go to court with me, and he did, and I resented the hell out of it because all he did was go to court with me. I wanted him to get up and tell the judge, everything's going to be all right. He didn't do that. I never, I never appreciated the fact that the man took time out of his day for somebody that didn't know, but that he loved because I had the same disease. That he was willing to do that because he cared about me. 
I was so wrapped up in me, I didn't see that until I was sober years. But and I and so after I, I convinced Marty I was I was alcoholic, I went to my lawyer put me together with a psychiatrist, and I went to see the psychiatrist, and uh, he talked about my mother, and I talked about his mother, and it was a, and uh, it was a lovely relationship. But he said that I was alcoholic, and what he said he was going to do was he was going to recommend that I go into a recovery home. So I was all set. I put this deal together. Went in front of the judge. Marty sat there, and the psychiatrist got up there and made this recommendation, and the judge called me for it. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. The reason I'll never forget it was because it didn't faze me. What he said was, to me was, he said, Steve, everybody seems to think you're alcoholic. He said, I don't think you're alcoholic. I think you're crazy. He said, and you're not worth being on my conscience. Didn't bother me. I wasn't worth being on my conscience. Didn't faze me in the least. He said, so I'm going to send you to jail, but I'm going to send you to jail for 30 days. He says, because you'll be back. I mean, it almost took two men to carry my record in. I knew I'd be back, too. I had no other way to live. I knew no other way to live. I was a prisoner in my own mind. You see? And the only thing that opened the prison for me at that time was alcohol and drugs. It was the only thing that made life all right. And I was willing to pay the price. I was willing to destroy people's lives. And I didn't want to do it. I was willing to go to jail, and I didn't want to do it. But I had to have the drink. I had to have the drink. So I went to jail for those 30 days, and, and I got out of jail. And these guys from Alcoholics Anonymous, they called me. And they said to me, Steve, you're out of jail now, and we'd like to take you to a meeting. I told them that I appreciated that. I had been to four or five of their meetings already. And I got the message. Now, I know it takes some people longer than, than that, but it didn't take me any longer than that. The message is, if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. And I heard that right away. I understood that. And I told them that I appreciated everything they had done for me, and if I could do anything for them, that they should give me a call. (laughs) 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 They said they would. (laughs) They never did, though. It was amazing. Uh, But I want to share with you a few things that Marty had told me that first time when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, because I think it's absolutely critical. What he told me was he told me things like, Your sobriety has to come before everything. And I'm doing a lot of head shaking and thinking bullshit. I don't believe any of this. He says it's got to come before that wife who's taken me back for about the 16th time. It's got to come before that son of yours. I'm thinking after all she's done for me, how could he even say that? How could he even say that? And he says it's got to come before that job if you should ever get another one. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy is absolutely crazy. doesn't make any sense. The reason that's important to you, because within 30 days I was drinking again, and I left that wife, and I left that son. You see, sobriety wasn't more important, but the drinking was. The drinking was always more important. He said something else to him. He said, sobriety is not a game. It's a matter of life and death. You go back out there and drink again, and you can die. We're not playing with you here. <laughs> you, want a, you want a way to live? We've got it. You want a way to die? Go out there and drink some more. He told me a story about a guy who had been sober a year who went out with him one night just to go out dancing at a nightclub. And he was with him. And they looked at the guy, and the guy all of a sudden said, Hey, I'm going to have a drink. He said, I've been sober a year, and I know I can drink now. And Marty said he was absolutely floored. The guy drank. He told me, he said, in that night, the guy died in his own puke. Now I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, Who does he think he's talking to? I've been drinking for years, and I never heard anybody dying in their own puke. Now, he wants to tell me this guy's going to die. I don't believe it. He's trying to scare me, and I don't believe it. As I say, I got out of jail, and I didn't go to any meetings. And what I did was I went to those bars, and I drank that $1.75 up and let everybody know I wasn't drinking. Finally, one guy said, well, all I need to say, he said, maybe you are alcoholic, maybe you aren't. Maybe you can drink, maybe you can't. I don't know, but a little marijuana never hurt anybody, and besides that, you deserve it. Look how good you've been. He was right. I had been. I mean, I hadn't come home any earlier than I'd ever come home before. I was doing the same actions, and the result was obviously the same. I smoked that marijuana, and I realized that wine goes real nice with it. Now, I'm not going to drink real alcohol, just wine. (laughs) Just wine. I became a great connoisseur of wines. You know, and the only thing I looked for on the label was alcohol content. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't last on wine too long because they didn't have enough of it. I wanted the stuff that got me downtown right now real quick. So I was back on that booze. When I got out, and, 
and I lost those jobs and I moved out from that wife, you know, and, and uh, we got divorced. And I got that son of mine on weekends. And, you know, <clears throat> two weekends before I left Florida and moved to California, I got that son and <clears throat> he was about a year and a half old and I got him on a Saturday and we had a nice time out by the pool and we started, <clears throat> we started having a beer party out there by the pool and I was drinking that beer. And about 4 o'clock that afternoon, <clears throat> I decided that I needed to go out. So I went out, you see, and I came home about 4 o'clock in the morning. And my son was asleep on the couch. I'd forgotten he was there. I left a year and a half old boy there all day by himself. And I died just a little bit more. And I hated me just a little bit more. I said, God, you know, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be a good parent? I want to be a good father. Couldn't be. Want to be a good father? Can't be. I just want to be all right. And I can't be. So I did the only thing I knew how to do. I ran away from home. I ran to Santa Barbara, California. And, you know, and they tricked me in Santa Barbara, California. It's what they did. I went to those bars. And they had the same people. <clears throat> they changed their names and they changed their faces. But they were exactly the same because I was exactly the same. And I lasted in Santa Barbara, California for about 45 days. <clears throat> and the thing happened to me that I believe happens to every alcoholic. The day came when I took a drink and it didn't work. The day came that I took a drink and it still hated me. The day came when I took the drink and I said, God, why can't I get that feeling? And I drank and I drank and I drank and I couldn't get the feeling. And the terror crept over me. More fear than I'd ever known all my life. And the fear was that I was going to have to live with me for the rest of my life. The one thing I had always tried to avoid. You see, I had this feeling in life I always wanted to be you. Just always wanted to be you. If I could only had your job, I'd be all right. Be all right if I just had your job. If I had your wife, I'd be just fine. If I just had your wife, I know I'd be all right. If I had your house, I know it'll be all right. Problem with that is a lot of times I ended up with those things and it wasn't all right. <laughs> and I came and I was faced with the reality that I was going to have to live with me and I didn't know what to do. And I remembered <clears throat> those people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember those people in Alcoholics Anonymous told me it was going to be all right. And I needed somebody to tell me it was going to be all right. So I called Alcoholics Anonymous that day, and I, I said, <clears throat> I said, my name's Steve, and I've got a problem. This girl from, from Texas answered the phone, and she said, I know, honey, I've got the same problem. And I thought that was strange because I hadn't told her what it was yet. <laughs> and she said, why don't you come on down? And <clears throat> I said, well, I'll try to. And she said, we'll be here till 5, and I'll be looking for you. And for some reason, I didn't drink that day. And I made it down there before 5 o'clock, right at 5 o'clock. And she was there, and a man was there. And... Uh, and I started talking to her, and she and she she said it's going to be all right. It's really going to be all right. And I said, uh, I don't know what to do. And she said, you need to go to a meeting tonight. And I said, no, I, I got to move tonight. When you're unemployable, you move a lot, you know. I was three thousand miles away from my family, and they were glad. I didn't have the money to get back home, and they were ecstatic. You know. <laughs> and uh, so I just tell you how I looked that day. I walked into. That day I walked in the central office in 1977. I walked in and I was wearing a pink suit. <clears throat> and I was wearing a blue silk shirt. I was wearing a pink tie with a naked lady. <laughs> I had an afro. And I had heels on that big. I was in the business of looking good, I, you know. <laughs> oh, God, I was traveling incognito is what I was doing. <laughs> But I walked in that office, and uh, and they told me it was going to be all right. And I, I left, <clears throat> and she said, we got to close up. And she gave me a number of a guy to call to go to a meeting that night. And she locked the office. And then she turned around, and she looked at me, and she unlocked the office. And she said, come on in. I said, okay. So I came back in, and this gentleman came back in, and she locked the door, and she said, okay, go ahead. And I looked at her, and I cried like I never cried before because I hurt so bad. And she asked me the same question I had been asked three years earlier. She said, Steve, are you willing to go to any lengths to stay sober? And I said, yes. The reason I said yes was because I was willing to do anything just not to hurt anymore, just so I wouldn't have the pain anymore. I was willing to do anything, even not drink. I was just willing to do anything, you know. And I, I asked her, <laughs> I asked her one of the questions all newcomers ask. I said, well, are there any single women in Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> she was cruel. <laughs> She said, not for you. <laughs> and she said, because you don't have anything to offer. <laughs> and I knew she was right. 
Now, I thought she was talking about I was unemployable, I didn't have a job, I didn't have a place to live. She was talking about I didn't have anything going inside, you see. I didn't have anything going on inside for me. You know, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, we come to Alcoholics Anonymous and we talk about the two things we know the least about, sobriety and relationships. <laughs> you know, it's absolutely incredible. I was around five years before I realized there's only one thing in my life that ever drove me to drink, and that was sobriety. Always drove me to drink. You see, you come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and if you don't work this program in your life, I believe you'll drink again. It's a requirement that you work the program in your life. See, you can't come to meetings and stay sober. You've got to become part of what goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous. You must become part of what is happening here. You see, because we alcoholics, we need to belong somewhere. We've got to belong. If you do not belong in Alcoholics Anonymous, you belong out there. You can't belong here by coming into meetings and sitting around. You must stick your hand out when you don't want to stick your hand out. You see, you must apply the principles. And you can't apply those principles by yourself. If you read them, you see that it takes more than one in a lot of cases. So you've got to work with somebody else. And you've got to open yourself up. The more you open yourself up, the more vulnerable you become, the more you become part of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we're only as sick as our secrets. Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life. Drinking is a way of dying, one day at a time. One day at a time. I was around 90 days, and I went up to my sponsor, and I said, you know, I'm not sure I'm alcoholic. When he quit laughing, he said, why not? <laughs> I said, I'm not sure I'm alcoholic, he said, because I know that all you people had problems drinking. He said, my problem never was drinking until the last six months I was drinking. My problem was sobriety. I, my problems all happened to me when I wasn't drinking. What he said to me opened the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, thank God. Thank God, Steve. He said, if your problem is drinking, there's a solution. Don't drink. You don't need to come to these meetings. You don't need to buy that big book. You don't need to work these principles in your life. Just don't drink. He said, however, if your problem is sobriety and drinking was your solution that was killing you one day at a time, we've got a new solution for you, and it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a brand new way to go. We are not going to repair your life because your life is beyond repair. What we got here is a brand new deal. Scrap all the stuff you came in here with, and we'll give you a brand new package. And I said, thank God, because people have been trying to fix me all my life. And I knew what I had was unrepairable. So we got a brand new deal. So if you're new or you're nearly new, and that's what we have here for you, a brand new shot at life. The best deal you'll ever get. You know, I'd like to tell you that uh, since I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, that every day has been a holiday, but it hasn't been that way. What Alcoholics Anonymous has given me is the opportunity to learn how to live one day at a time. It's given me the best deal I've ever got. You see, I never had a chance out there before I came here. I've got some principles in my life that I've learned how to apply in my life most of the time outside these meetings. You see, Alcoholics Anonymous <coughs> works after the meeting ends if you'll apply it in your life. You see, you get out of Alcoholics Anonymous exactly what you put into it. There are no free lunches here. You know, there's a price to pay for sobriety. If you've come into Alcoholics Anonymous and you never have learned how to live out there because you came into a living situation, any living situation, and the only way you dealt with it was the way I dealt with it is you got loaded. That's the way I dealt with life. Well, all of a sudden you come in here and they say don't drink. And all of a sudden life goes on and you've got to learn how to deal with it. And we've got a way. We've got a way that will surpass any way you've ever dreamed of. There's 12 principles that you apply in your life. They're, not, they're an outline for living. They're an outline for living. Alcoholics Anonymous is full of miracles. You see, there's no way that I could get from that jail in Jacksonville, Florida to this podium in Portland, Oregon. It just can't happen. But it has for some reason. And the reason it's happened is because I gave, I gave alcohol the best fight I could and it beat the hell out of me. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous <clears throat> because I took a drink and I decided I didn't like it. I fought alcohol long after I'd lost the battle. And when I couldn't fight it anymore and I didn't have any choice and they said, are you willing to do anything? I was. I was willing to do anything. And if you're new, you think about that. If you're willing to turn your will and your life over to somebody else other than yourself, you stand a chance. Your best shot got you to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
the best you could do got you here. And if you're still here running your life, the chances are you're going to go back out there again or you're going to be awful damn miserable in here. You've got to learn a brand new way to live. And you can. It's absolutely fantastic. I'm grateful that you're here tonight. Without you, I'm out there on the streets. You see, I don't have a way to go without you. It's people like you. We may not share the same experiences, but we share the same feelings. We share the same fears. And because of those fears, we share the same love. I want to thank Bob and Jan for <clears throat> inviting me up. I want to thank you for being here, and I hope to see you again. Thank you very much. The people share with us about their experience in their life. And this is the April Fool's time, you know. And from the Mox Crest group of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd like to call on Donna C. to speak to us tonight on about Al-Anon. Donna? Thank you very much, and welcome, everyone. You'll have to bear with me this evening because I didn't know I was going to be your speaker until about 10 minutes after I'd come here tonight. In fact, this is my first time at Obie's. And Lenny came up and said, Donna, you're going to speak this evening? And I said, no. I said, what are you talking about? Not me. It must be another Donna. No, well, will you speak tonight? <laughs> and I think my higher power said yes because I don't know how I got up here in this position, believe you me. But it's long overdue. I've been in the Al-Anon program for about six years, and this is the largest crowd I've ever spoke at. My speaking to somebody about AA or Al-Anon has been at just our little level out in Mox Crest. I think the largest group I ever spoke to was we celebrated our 12th um, anniversary of AA and Al-Anon, and we shared it together. And there was about maybe 60 or 65 people. And I won't tell you what happened to me at the break, but I was in the bathroom for a real long time. (laughs) Um, All I can do this evening is share with you a little bit about myself and try and keep the topic on myself. I started out at a very early age reacting to alcohol. I was probably about maybe five, six, or seven. And my folks on the weekend would go to a place in Everett, Washington called My Office Tavern. And usually on the weekends, that's where I hung out when I was about six years old, my brother and myself. And my brother is younger than me. And we would usually sit in the car on Friday and Saturday nights, and we'd have all these neat strangers bring us pop, Hershey bars, and whatever. My brother was real happy about it, but I didn't like it. I just wanted to be home where it was safe, and I was in a nice warm bed. But I took care of my brother. And this went on in our family until probably I was in high school. And there was a lot of partying on the weekend. And a lot of things that I really knew caused me a lot of problems. I had feelings about this, but I didn't know how to verbally talk about it, I knew I was embarrassed about it. I really didn't want my friends that I knew then in high school to know anything like this was going on at home. It was okay during the week. Um, We managed to get through the week just fine, and I liked that about Mom and Dad. I felt very comfortable. I didn't want to see Friday through Sunday come because I knew there would be a lot of drinking. Mom probably couldn't get out of bed on Saturday, and I was the natural, uh, what they call, I guess it was in me, I was born with it, want to take care of and save and help person. And when mom couldn't get up on Saturday, the first thing I wanted to do was make her a hot cup of coffee or get her some soup or something. And usually I was the one that prepared dinner that night. I don't know why I didn't worry about my dad too much because maybe he was kind of like robust and big and I always thought he could take care of himself okay. But I had a feeling about my mom and I felt sorry for her and I felt the need to take care of her. So I think this was bred into me before I ever met my spouse, this need to take care of somebody that was, I was having the problem with the drinking and the reacting to it. Um, later in my life, when I was about 16 years old, I met the man I married and love today. And our marriage didn't start out in alcoholic drinking. In fact, there wasn't a lot of drinking at all. Uh, my husband was very athletic. He worked hard. We had three children right away. And that meant he had to work hard. <laughs> so... I don't know when the drinking really started, and I didn't have, I only had my past to go on, and so some of the drinking that did start, 
it seemed to flow into my life in a pattern that was acceptable because I'd grown up with it. And I think the drinking, my husband's athletic ability, he got injured and he had to have some surgery on his kneecap. But instead, you know, when you're raising a family of three small children, there isn't always money to go around for these surgeries when you need them. And I think might have been then that it could have been the start of, of too much drinking for my husband because he wanted to put off this, this surgery that he needed. So he turned to pills and uh, pain pills to take care of the pain in his knee. And like I say, I don't know when it crossed over, when the pills began to take over and he was taking them for more than just the pain in his knee. It got all kind of uh, ran together. But I knew that I felt I started to have these old feelings again. It was like, like my mom or my dad, like I wanted to take care of him, that he was this different person after he'd had too many pills or maybe he'd done a little drinking and take the pills at the same time. And, of course, I loved this person, and I hated to see this happening to him, but I didn't know what to do. And it's like society tells you uh, in some way that you are responsible. I knew I had my mother and my father-in-law come to me one afternoon and said, look what this man's going through. Uh, you know, make sure you take care of him. Is he getting his medicine? And I, I did start doling out pills. And one day, I think the first time it ever came to my mind, the, the hospital, the pharmacist called and, and said uh, something to the effect that, my husband was taking 20 Darvon pills a day. And I thought, Gad, I, you know, it was really a surprise to me. And uh, as time went along, the pills and the drinking, like I say, just went together. And I think that's when I started to react a lot to the, to the one I loved in his drinking. And I got really screwed up. Um, before I came into Al-Anon, I really couldn't take a look at myself and see where I even fit into this picture. But when my husband was using or drinking too much and he'd come into the house, I'd be the first one to hit him with that cliche, where have you been and how much have you had to drink? And I never took a look at what I was doing. I would get so furious that it would just start at my toenails and go right on up to my hairline. And a lot of times, you know, he never knew what to expect. I could get very verbal, and as it got into the more... Uh, the drinking pattern got more set and it got worse, I became really violent. And it wasn't my husband that came out swinging. It was usually me. And at the time, I didn't see what it was doing to my kids. All I knew was that I wanted my husband to quit drinking and I didn't want him to take so many pills. And they say I'm only supposed to talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> so I don't, this is a first for me. So Anyway, as the drinking and the drugs kind of uh, went their way, and I got, I was involved with the kids and everything, it, it got to a turning point that it finally ended up that my husband went to the hospital. And he'd had ulcers, and so we thought at the time when he went to the hospital that it was probably an ulcer attack. And I'll never forget that night. It was about 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night, and the doctor called me in, and my sister-in-law went with me. And the doctor came out and he said, uh, you know, your husband's problem, he's got what they call uh, alcoholic pancreatitis. And I just really didn't, couldn't comprehend what that meant. But anyway, in the, in the short of it all, the drinking had caused his pancreas to just about disintegrate, I guess. And we only have one pancreas. And the doctor had told us if my husband didn't stop this drinking, he was, he's going to have a short life. And um, I remember at the time, my sister-in-law kind of tried to talk for me. Uh, of course, the doctor said, is your husband a heavy drinker? And my sister-in-law answered for her brother, well, no, he isn't. And I didn't really, I was still so shocked at the doctor saying that it was alcoholically uh, caused that I really didn't say much. And so the next day, when I finally got my head on, I had to call that doctor back because I, it was still quite a shock that it had been something alcoholically involved because I thought my husband's drinking was normal, whatever normal drinking was, because I would saw and experienced it through my folks. So anyway, the doctor did tell me the same thing, that it was called alcoholic pancreatitis, and that what he was going to do was suggest that my husband get himself to an AA program. So that's kind of where I started out. I started out at AA at Moxcrest in St. John's, and we went there for maybe two or three months. And uh, it was there that I learned compassion for the alcoholic. I heard the people in AA tell their stories, and I started to lose some of this resentment and some of this anger that I felt for my husband. 
And it was there I was told that I could love the man and hate the disease. And I had it all confused. It was all running together for me. I was beginning to hate the man also. So this sounded really good to me because I really did love him. And I learned these people in AA were people. And they were loving people and neat people. So we did. We stayed around the program for about three months. But my husband had to go out and drink again. And this time... I, I left my husband one night, and I called my brother-in-law, who was your speaker last weekend at the state speakers meeting, Pat. And I told him what he hadn't, he didn't know about his brother's drinking at that time. And he said, Donna, are you ready to give, you know, your husband some tough love? And I didn't exactly know what he meant. And he said, do you mean what you say, that, you, that you've left him and you're, and you're not going back? Have you made a clear and good decision about this for yourself? And I said, yes, I have. I'm scared. So he said something nice I'll never forget. He says, Donna, sit down, put your feet up, take a hot bath, and relax. And, you know, your husband will be okay. So I kept in touch with him for a couple, three days. And about on the second day, my husband called me from home. And I told him he had a choice that day. He could either go to jail or he could go to a treatment center. Well, I guess you know what he took. He took the treatment center. <laughs> and... uh Thank God we'd had about three months of AA because I knew a couple nice people. One still around the program. His name is Buzz, and the other man's name is Mac, and he's since passed away. And uh, my husband did say, please, if they come for me, in a whack he was going to jail or something, just have them come before the kids get home from school. So my husband entered a treatment center in Vancouver, Washington, Swarf, and he spent 21 days there. And I remember how I felt about that. I felt, I felt afraid. I felt my husband was going to be going through something that might take him away from me. And when I went over to Swarf so I could talk to the counselors and everything, I really kind of had a chip on my shoulder. And I was a little bit defensive, but I know what that was now. I was just scared. And uh, they were so helpful. And they have a program over there. It's called Family Support. And that's for people and uh, friends and relatives of alcoholics. And so I went to that for about two or three days. And they told me there, that's where I heard the word Al-Anon, that I should get in an Al-Anon program. That, that's where my growth would be. So I, I knew that if I wanted to get well, I know it's a family disease, and I knew that if I was to get well, I would, I would have to go to this program called Al-Anon. So I went. And believe you me, I really didn't like it when I first went at all. And I played around with it for a couple, three months. I'd go for a week and I'd stay away for a month. But I saw those women there. I knew they'd experienced and been what I'd been through. And I should say men, too, because we do have a few men in Al-Anon. And I knew that they'd been through things that I'd been through. And I felt welcome and loved. And I felt like when I talked, I communicated and I related. Um, I must back up a little bit because after I stayed in AA for about three months, it was very hard for me to relate. I didn't, I couldn't share that much because I was on the other side of the coin. So I felt very comfortable in Al-Anon, but yet it was really hard for me to take a look at myself and the part I played in this disease. And that's what I ran away from for so long. But in Al-Anon, they say too, not to kick yourself too long either. I didn't know that some of these things I did, I really got crazy. Uh, I didn't know a better way, and it wasn't until I came into Al-Anon that they taught me how to live. I, uh, When there was a lot of the drinking going on, there were some days I found myself, I'd pull all my blinds in my house and everything, and just want to shut out the whole world. I wouldn't even answer the telephone. It was like I thought, if I don't love, I can't be hurt anymore, because it seemed like that's who I was getting hurt from, was the one I loved the most. So I was just going to shut out everything, and that doesn't work. And when I look back now on what I did, it was just as insane as the alcoholic drinking. And I look back now on what I did and getting so physical and so wild when my husband drank. I did all those things. I counted pills. I poured out booze. I didn't get in my nightgown, but I did get in the car and hunt up the clubs just looking for his car. I realize now through the Al-Anon program how crazy I really was. And I, I didn't feel like I'd injured my kids, but it was shortly thereafter that my oldest daughter told me, Mom, there was a few times we had to go down to their grandparents because I was acting so weird. Because like I say, when my husband drank, he wasn't really violent or anything. It was usually my mouth that got him that way. And I just didn't know when to shut it up. 
So another thing Elanon taught me was that I didn't cause the drinking, that I couldn't cure it, and I couldn't control it. And this was like a big weight off my shoulders because I did come into Elanon believing that I'd caused my husband's illness. So this was a great reliever for me on my shoulders to know that I hadn't caused it. And today I just try to work the Elanon principles and their steps. I had trouble with step number one. I couldn't for the longest time figure out where I was powerless over alcohol. I thought my husband drinks it. It's not me. Where in the hell do I fit in around here? But I soon, you know, I started working the steps. I'm just a slow learner, but I do have the love of all the people in Al-Anon. I feel good about going to my Al-Anon meetings now. And in the last six years, we've had sobriety in our home. We've had, um, and we've not had sobriety in our home. Uh, we're now coming up on three years sobriety. So that too helped me in Al-Anon when my husband had a couple slips. The whole world didn't come to an end. I didn't have to go so crazy. I had a sponsor. I could call her. And her name was Donna too. So it was really neat that I had somebody. But now I think my husband and myself, in the la- we've been in the program, like I say, approaching seven years. And I think it's been in the last three or four that we have really grown on our programs. And I think it's come from sharing and getting to know you people and being able to open up a little bit and not feel embarrassed and not think that just because you've done some crazy things in your life that you're going to be condemned for it. And I've tried to, you know, get a little active in Al-Anon. Like I say, it hasn't gone much past my group. This is my first experience up here. So anyway, I'll just close because I'm sure I've talked 10 minutes and thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.